0: but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I don't know if you've ever gotten one of those moods where you just kind of want to declutter the house and you just start like throwing stuff away or giving stuff away. Uh, that happens to me every few months, and about a year ago, I got in that mood, and I and I and I found out the hard way as a married man that I don't just get rid of stuff, but I need to talk to my wife about it. And so I I went to Trish and I said, "Hey Trish, can we get rid of this white lamp because it's it's pretty ugly, it's it's outdated, uh, it doesn't even work that well. Like, can we just can we just throw it away?" And her response was, "That's my grandma's lamp," and so. I realized at that moment that this, that this item, even though it wasn't particularly attractive, had a, had a weightiness to it and a value to it and a beauty to it because of the person connected to it. I, I've had that the other way around where I've been on the other side of that. If you go in my office, I have this little stand that I put my laptop on and it's a kind of a, a wooden stand. You can tell it's homemade. The craftsmanship isn't great. Well, one of my friends started making fun of it and talking about how marvelous it was and things like that. And I said, yeah, this belonged to my neighbor, uh, my elderly neighbors growing up. And they used to keep their Bible on it. And when they passed away, they gave it to me. And so they quit making fun of that particular piece of furniture. You know, I'm curious, uh, how many of you here today own a uh, a piece of jewelry, a necklace or a bracelet with a cross on it? Raise your hand. Uh, Keep your hand up. Okay. How many of you have a cross somewhere in your house as decoration? Either up on a wall or on a picture frame. Okay. How many of you have seen a cross before? All right. Okay. All right. Some of you are not raising your hands, which means you are tried and true Presbyterians because Presbyterians don't raise their hands in a worship service. So great to have you with us. Uh, You can raise your hands all you want. I love hand raisers. But anyways, um, Here's the thing is that that we pass by probably dozens of crosses every day. I mean, there's one there. You'll see them throughout your house. They're on coffee mugs. I mean, they're cross-stitched. They're on our walls. They're everywhere. And what tends to happen is that because we see the cross so much, we forget the weightiness of the cross and we forget the beauty of the cross. And so today, what my hope is to do is just to pause And to look into God's word and consider the glory of the cross together. Now I want to be very careful with this because in some traditions we have turned the cross into an idol. As if it is something that we worship. Sometimes people pray to the cross which is literally praying to pieces of wood. Sometimes people see crosses as, you know, lucky rabbit's foots. They'll have it around their neck and they'll, they'll rub it or they'll kiss it, you know, before they're about to do something, uh, thinking that it will give them good luck on whatever they want. And so we don't come here to worship the cross, but we come to worship the one who bore the cross on our behalf. Does that make sense? And so as we study the cross and consider the weightiness and the beauty of the cross, we want to look through the cross to the one who died upon the cross for you and for me. So if you would please open up your Bibles to John chapter 19. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you. A red Bible and it's page 905 in that red Bible. Page 1075 in the large print. Blue Bible. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of John, and we have come to the story of the cross. Each gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, also John, talk about the cross of Christ, but each of them provide different details about the cross. And so today, I really want to focus on John's details about the cross of Christ and ask the question, why does he give certain details and not other details? Now, we'll, we'll bring in some details from some of the other gospel accounts, but mostly focus on the gospel of John to help us grow in our appreciation for the weightiness and the beauty of the cross. So today, I'm going to start in verse 15. So we'll, we'll overlap a little bit with last week, but we will read through verse 21. John 19, verse 15. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Let's pray. Lord, we come today to your scripture with our gaze set upon a familiar figure, the figure of the cross. God, as we come to study the cross, to understand the cross, to appreciate the cross more, pray, Lord, that you would help us to once again see the weightiness of the cross and the beauty of the cross. Do this by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, that's right. So today, as we consider, again, the weightiness and the beauty of the cross, we also have to recognize that the cross is horrifically ugly. To wear a cross around your neck, some have said, is like wearing an electric chair. But to be honest, an electric chair is far more merciful than a cross. A cross was was developed to be an enduring cruelty a long-lasting torture, and, and have a suffocating death of the one who hung upon it. It was a horrible, ugly sign to the people who stood below it. And so today, as we consider these things, I want to ask the question, how can the cross, an item of such misery and horror, also be for us a symbol of beauty and joy and glory. And so there are three aspects of the cross I want to look at today. First is the journey of the cross. Now before we get to the journey of the cross, I want to consider Christ's journey to the cross. Let me ask, when did Christ's journey to the cross begin? Don't answer out loud because I might embarrass you. Christ's journey to the cross began before the creation of the world. Because the cross was the eternal plan of God and Christ is the eternally begotten Son of God. And so the the journey to the cross began before the world even existed. The journey to the cross was first proclaimed in Genesis 3.15 when Adam and Eve sinned against God because they were deceived by the devil and God comes and God promises that he will send a seed of the woman, the line of the woman, a son of the woman To come and crush the head of Satan, which is accomplished on the cross. Considering Christ's earthly journey to the cross, his his proclamation of the cross was was begun even at his conception. If you remember, when Mary was pregnant, an angel came to Joseph. And he's telling Joseph not to divorce Mary, not to leave Mary. Because Mary has conceived a child by the Holy Spirit. And the angel says to Joseph that he should give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. How will he save them from their sins? Through the cross. Then there are the final 24 hours. The final 24 hours of Christ's journey to the cross. Really, it's what we've been studying for the past six months. These times are approximate, but on Thursday, about 24 hours prior to the cross of Christ, Jesus gathers his disciples for that final Passover meal. And he transforms it from the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper saying, this is my body and my blood pointing them to the cross. Then Jesus gives a farewell discourse with the final instructions and preparing them for the reality of the cross that's going to come. That evening, about 12 hours before the cross, Jesus takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ cries out to God the Father concerning the cross and the wrath of God that comes upon the cross. And yet in obedience, Jesus does not run away from the cross, but around midnight he surrenders himself to his betrayer in the military that is around him that will lead him to the cross. Good Friday, around 1 a.m., Jesus appears before Annas, the patriarchal high priest who was a former high priest. Jesus then from 2 to 4 a.m. appears to a council of the Sanhedrin. Around 5 a.m. stands trial before the full Sanhedrin. 6 a.m. in the morning, Jesus stands trial before Pilate. And then 7 to 8 a.m., Jesus is sent to Herod and back to Pilate. Between 8 and 9 in the morning... Jesus is sentenced to be crucified. And then 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., the journey of the cross leads him up to Calvary for the crucifixion. So with this timeline in mind, I want to look back at our text. Verse 16, the second half. And I'm going to slow us down and dissect this a little bit. It says, So they took Jesus and he went out. This this. This little note here that Jesus went out may be something that we would quickly read over, not considered to be very important. But the writer of Hebrews tells us why it's so important that Jesus went out, meaning outside the walls of Jerusalem. In Hebrews 13, it says, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place, which is the temple in the city, says as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. And so the question is, why is it so important that Jesus follows the model of the atoning sacrifice on the day of atonement? Why is it so important that Jesus goes outside the gate to die, outside the city to die? Well, Richard Pratt, in talking about this Hebrews passage tells us that it is so important because the symbolism of the day of atonement is expressed two ways in what Christ did upon the cross in his atoning work. First off, the blood was brought into the most holy place, declaring that it was only through the death of a blameless substitute that a human could approach a holy God. But the second, and probably the more, more important for this passage, is that the bodies of the animals were burned outside of the camp To indicate that the substitute became unclean as the bearer of the people's sins. And so why is it so important? Why does John include this detail in his gospel? Why does the writer of Hebrews talk about it? It's because Christ took upon our uncleanliness. He took upon our sin. He actually became sin for us. And because he became our sin, he had to go outside of the gate to be crucified. The passage continues. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. Now there have been many artistic renderings of Jesus bearing his own cross, carrying it up to Golgotha. Many times the rendering has the full cross you know, the, the, the bottom dragging against the ground as Jesus carries it. But the Roman tradition was that they would give him the crossbar only, not the, not the vertical part. And they would put that on his shoulders and he would have to carry it up to Golgotha, up to Calvary, the place of the skull, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And, and what's so interesting is this crossbar usually weighed between about 50 and 100 pounds, which may be heavy to us, but it's not that heavy. Especially for a Jewish carpenter, for someone who was used to carrying around lumber, for someone who was used to carrying around stones, for someone who, was, who really traveled a lot and carried pretty much everything he owned on his back, 50 to 100 pounds would not be that significant. And yet, Christ fell under the weight of that crossbeam. He could not carry that crossbeam up to Calvary. And the question is why? Why couldn't Christ carry it if it was not all that heavy? Well, if you remember, Jesus was scourged by the Roman soldiers. It was a punishment reserved for non-Roman citizens because it was too painful and humiliating to inflict upon a Roman citizen. It was said that that scourging was, was so humiliating because it was worse than what, quote, a stupid animal would receive. The scourging would include a leather whip which had nine leather tails to it. And in those tails there would be sharp objects like glass and metal and sheep bone. And they would tie the person up to a post because one lash of this would strike them to the ground. They would tie them to a post and they they would reach back and they would throw the whip at their back. And as the whip impacted their back. All of those sharp pieces would dig into their flesh and dig into the muscle and then they would rip it away tearing the back to shreds. It's a horrific picture to imagine and yet we know from the prophet Isaiah that Jesus received a thorough flogging because according to Isaiah, Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. That was, And it doesn't say beyond recognition as Jesus, but beyond recognition even as a human being. That's how badly Jesus was beaten. And so you can imagine his back completely exposed, the muscles torn, it is raw. And they put upon it this splintery cross. And he is beaten so severely that he cannot even make it up the hill. You see, Jesus fell under the weight of the cross, not because the cross was so heavy, but because Jesus was beaten so badly for you and for me. And so this stranger, Simon of Cyrene, comes and helps Christ carry his cross to the place of crucifixion. Back to our passage again. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. In Latin, it's translated, Calvary. Scholars are not exactly sure why the place is called the place of the skull. Uh, There's a Jewish tradition that believes that Adam's uh, skull was buried in that mountain. Others say that it's called the place of the skull because the contours of it from a certain angle looks like a skull. Maybe it was simply called the place of the skull because that's where people were crucified. Whatever the reason... For them naming this, the place of the skull, it was obviously not a place you took your family on a picnic. It was a place not of of joy and of life, but of death and of judgment. And so we look at the journey of the cross of Christ, a journey of suffering, a journey of shame, a journey of death, and it is so horrible and yet beautiful because that is the journey that we deserve that Christ took on our place. The second aspect of the cross. We have the journey of the cross. There's also the proclamation of the cross. Look at verse 19 with me. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, Now it was common for the Romans to put a sign on the cross of a person being crucified. The purpose of that sign was to list the crimes the person had done. to warn others that if they would commit such crimes the same thing would happen to them. And so they would hang these people uh, by a major travel route so that people could see them. They were almost like living or dying billboards to the people to obey the Roman government. And so they list Jesus' crime on the cross above him. And it says, King of the Jews. Now you can imagine how aggravated the Jews are about this. And we'll see that in a little bit. But God had a different purpose for this sign. God's purpose for the sign was to proclaim and to identify to all who pass by. And to all who read this passage today. The true identity of Jesus. He is king of the Jews, but he's more than king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. He is the king of the world. And that's what we're going to see here is that this passage actually shows us the unique features of Jesus as king. What, What makes Jesus a unique king compared to every other king? It's proclaimed here in this passage. First, we see the cross proclaims that Jesus is the global king. You see here that the sign is written in different languages. Verse 20, it says, Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Now, Aramaic would have been the common language of the Jews. Latin would have been the common language of the Roman Empire. And Greek was kind of the the universal common language for all, all people. And so you can see even how this this sign, this proclamation that Jesus is king even follows to a certain extent the Great Commission, right? Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the uttermost ends of the earth. Jesus is the global universal king. The second thing that the cross proclaims is that Jesus is the rejected king. Look at verse 21 with me. It says, so the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Jesus was a Jew. He was king of the Jews, but the Jews rejected him as their king. We read about this early in the Gospel of John. John 1:11 says that Jesus came to his own and his own people. The Jews did not receive him. Jesus is still rejected as king today by millions of people who refuse to bow the knee to him as their lord and their king. The third thing that the cross proclaims is that Jesus is the promised king. Look back at verse 18. It says, There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now it's interesting because John does not go into more details about those other criminals crucified. He just wants to make us aware of it. And the reason why John wants to make us aware of it is because he is telling us something about Jesus, that Jesus is the promised king. He picks this up later as he describes Jesus's clothing. Verse 23 says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his two." But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Now this may seem like an irrelevant detail, but John goes on. He says, this was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things things. Skip down to verse 28. This is next week's passage, but it says, after this, Jesus, knowing all that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And so you see, John is including these details that may seem random and obscure and not all that important. He talks about how Jesus was thirsty in his death. He talks about how the soldiers gambled for his clothing. They talk about how Jesus um, was thirsty and wanted some water. And he is listing all of this to show us that Jesus is the promised king. You see, Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before the cross of Christ. And this is what it says, talking about the promised king. It says, my strength is dried up like a poster, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. This is expressing his thirstiness, which is also expressed in other psalms. Verse 16, it says, for dogs encompass me, talking about the Roman soldiers who crucified him. A company of evildoers encircle me, talking about those who were crucified next to him, okay? Now, so far, this is fairly generic. This could apply to hundreds of people throughout history, but then it gets undeniably specific. It says, they have pierced my hands and feet. We know Christ was crucified on the cross. Again, they put nails through his hands and his feet. But what is so fascinating about this prophecy of the coming king is that the cross was not even invented until 600 years after this psalm was written. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. We know Jesus' bones were not broken because he died so quickly. We'll learn more about that in the coming weeks. They stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So in the passage today, we read that Jesus had five pieces of clothing. The first four pieces were separated amongst the other, the the Roman soldiers. Each one got one piece of clothing. This was kind of their spoils for doing their job. Side perk, I guess you would call it. But what's so interesting is that because the tunic was seamless, because it was woven in one piece, this very minute detail, they decided not to tear it into four pieces, but to gamble over it, to cast lots for it, to fulfill the scripture. Now, just to be clear, this, the Roman soldiers were not sitting there below the cross thinking, how can we fulfill Psalm 22, right? How can we make sure that we, don't, that, that we cast lots for his clothing, Rather God had so ordained all that came to pass even that Jesus would have a seamless tunic and that the Roman soldiers would appreciate it so much that they would not tear it but cast lots for it. Jesus is the promised king. We also see fourthly that Jesus is the humiliated king. The cross of course was a means of torture but it was also a means of humiliation and shame. They actually led Jesus and they took, stripped him of his clothes and hung him on the cross naked for all to see. I don't think it's too hard for us to understand how humiliating that would be, right? If we went out and tied you, you know, on the, on the, on the electric post out by the street, completely naked for everyone that comes by you to honk at you, to mock at you, to insult you, that would be horrifically embarrassing, I mean, I don't know about you, I'd probably put my house on the market the next day and move out of state. But they would strip them naked to embarrass them, to shame them. You know, nakedness and and shame are connected all the way back in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2.25, we read that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But then when sin came into the world, They hid from God. God says, why did you hide from me? And Adam says, because I knew I was naked. And so he sewed sewed fig leaves to cover his nakedness. But then God in his grace came and created a better covering for their shame. God did something that was really unthinkable in the garden. God made the first killing in the history of the world. God killed an animal, a blood sacrifice, and took that blood sacrifice to cover the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve, pointing us forward to the cross of Christ. You see, friends, all of us will stand naked before a holy God one day. All of our sin exposed, all of our horrible thoughts, all of our horrible deeds, everything we do will be plain before God. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. All of us come before God naked and ashamed, completely exposed. And yet God has made a provision for our nakedness. God has made a provision for, For our sin and for our shame. He has offered a blood sacrifice to cover our shame. Isaiah 61 says, I will rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Galatians 3 says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ." Friends, if you trust in Christ for your salvation, you no longer have to fear standing naked and exposed before a holy God because you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corrie Ten Boom, who was in uh, concentration camps in Germany during World War II, she talks about a time and she says, um, she says uh, her sister and her were forced to remove their clothes and stand naked Uh, before the Nazi soldiers, as was typical for inspection. She talks about how embarrassing and shaming it was, and how dehumanizing it was. She says, as the soldiers joked and sneered, she stood there feeling completely defiled and forsaken. But then she remembered something. Jesus hung naked on the cross. Suddenly, her emotion turned to wonder and worship as she thought about how Jesus chose to do that which she was forced to do. She leaned forward and whispered to her sister, Betsy, Betsy, they took his clothes too. And Betsy gasped and said, Oh, Corey, that's right. And I never thanked him. Christian, have you thanked your king for being stripped naked? on your behalf to clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. The cross is so horribly ugly and yet majestically beautiful because the cross proclaims that Jesus is the global king, the promised king, but that he is also the rejected king and the humiliated king so that he could save you and bring him in bring you into his kingdom. That is the beauty of the cross. The journey of the cross. The proclamation of the cross. Finally, we have the compassion of the cross. I'll try to go quickly. We're running out of time. Verse 25 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. Talking about John, the author of this book. Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You know, when we first met Mary, Mary was a young teenage girl full of life and energy. Her future was in front of her. She was engaged. to This righteous man named Joseph, she must have dreamed of a big family and what would become of her children. But now here she is, three decades later, before the cross of Christ, watching her oldest son who has been beaten half to death, literally, and then hung on the cross to die as people pass by and mock him and hurl insults at him. And so she is overwhelmed with grief and despair. And yet Jesus, who is suffering, gasping for breath through his blood-drenched eyes focuses in on Mary, focuses in on John, and says, Mary, he will now be your son. He will take care of you. Now, here's the interesting thing. In my community group, they said, why didn't, why didn't, like, Jesus's half-brothers take care of Mary? Um, Which was a great question, and I think here's the reason. Jesus had at least three half-brothers and, and a couple half-sisters. We don't know how many, but why, why didn't Jesus give, give his mother to them to take care of? That seems to make sense. And I think the reason is because Jesus was far more concerned uh, for Mary than just her material needs. You see, they could provide for her a home. They could provide for her food. But they could not provide what John could provide, which is a spiritual kinship with one another. You see, at this point in time, uh, Jesus's brothers are painfully absent at the cross Later on, we will see them praying with the apostles. They even write some of the New Testament. But at this point in time, they're nowhere to be found. And John wants to make sure that Mary is taken care of, not only physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. You may remember when, when uh, Jesus is, is ministering and, and his mother and brothers come to talk to him. And Jesus responds saying to them, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, friends, at the cross, Jesus does not just save us from sin. Jesus saves us into a family. You notice here, I mean, we often focus on the mother, but but Jesus gives something to John as well. Jesus said to the mother, woman, behold your son. But he doesn't stop there. He said to the disciple, behold your mother. Jesus knows the trials they're going to go through, the pain they're going to go through. And so he gives family amongst them to care and to minister to one another. You know, when I first became a Christian, um, it was after my senior year of high school. And I wasn't raised in a Christian family. So I didn't know what it looked like to be a Christian man or um, Christian woman. Uh, I didn't know what it looked like to be Christian children. Like I didn't know anything. But God in his grace gave me a Christian family when I went to college. I had my good friend Joe Choi and Tim Allen that were my Christian brothers in Christ that showed me what it looked like to pursue Christ and live for Christ. God gave me Christian women in my life, like Laura Vogt and Heather Worley, to show me what it looks like to be a woman in Christ, that I might look for a woman who is in Christ. God also gave me older women and older men to be mothers and fathers in the faith to me. And this is part of the gift of the cross of Christ. This is his compassion poured out upon us. Pastor Jim, who spoke to you earlier, I'm so thankful for his ministry to me. I, I got out of seminary, and he was, he was my boss for two years, and he was a great boss, and he loved me and cared for me very well, and he showed me how to love and care for God's sheep. One, one time in particular that sticks out is we traveled down to Iowa for what's called a presbytery together. And we left on, on a morning, I think it was a Thursday morning, mid-morning, we drove down to Iowa. And when we got down there, I remember we, we checked into our hotel room. And then he spent an hour on the phone with his wife, who he had just talked to that morning. And I'm thinking, this is how a man of God loves his wife. And it was so convicting to me, I still remember it. The next day we went to this thing called the presbytery and we had, there's about a hundred pastors there. All of them are in suits and ties. And I come up to cut what's called come under care of the presbytery to start pursuing ordination as a, as a pastor. And so I get up and they start asking me questions and I don't know if I didn't eat enough food or if I have my knees locked or what. But I said, I think I'm going to faint. And so they said, okay, you know, go sit down. So I remember backing up and, and there was a chair back here, a bench, and I sat down. Pastor Jim came up as well as some of the other pastors and they just kind of put their hand on my back, said, how are you doing? One of them gave me some water and I was drinking and I just remember kind of being hunched over and I knew that I had fainted because the water bottle dropped and I remember just the thud of it hitting the hollow stage below me. When I, when I woke up from, from fainting, I I said, I think I'm going to throw up. And so one of the men there, uh, who I don't think knew the church very well, started looking around. And then he just sprinted for the atrium to go get a trash can. Pastor Jim was more resourceful than that. Pastor Jim started looking around and he grabbed the baptismal bowl. The the, the stone, it was either stone or porcelain or something. I don't know. It was fancy. He grabbed the baptismal bowl and he brings it over. I remember going, not the baptismal bowl, not the baptismal bowl. But I'm holding it in and I see the guy come through the doors of the atrium and he has a trash can in his hand and I'm thinking, I got to hold out. I got to hold out. But you know where where the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. (laughs) Whoa. right into the baptismal bowl, Pastor Jim there holding the bowl for me. And that may seem silly, but then I remember Pastor Jim coming alongside me. You know, in this case, you might want to distance yourself from someone like that, right? Because they just desecrated the baptismal bowl. Pastor Jim put his arm around me. It's okay, Dan. It's just furniture. It's just furniture. He was there to encourage me, to lift me up, to help gain a little bit of self-respect back, just a little bit. But this is what fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters in Christ do. We are there for each other throughout the trials of life, the embarrassments of life, to love and care and minister to one another. You know, I just shared a story that is very awkward for me. Let me, just as a means of retribution, ask you to do something very awkward for about 10 seconds. I want you to stop looking at me, and I want you to look at the people around you. Go ahead. I know it's awkward. Just do it. Look at the people around you, front, back, and hear these words. Christ not only died to save you from hell... Christ died to bring you into the family of God. And around you are your brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters in Christ. This is the compassion of Christ on the cross. Let me end with this. And I know I'm a little bit over. But when I was in college, I was a brand new Christian. And I joined a fraternity house. And I was living in this fraternity house. And it wasn't like a Christian fraternity house by any stretch of the imagination it was a fraternity house that you never want your daughter to go into. That's the fraternity house that I lived in. And because I had just become a Christian and God had really captured my heart, he used me to start up a Bible study in this fraternity house. And some of the guys through that Bible study recommitted their life to Christ. Some of them trusted in Christ for the first time. And as we were growing and seeking to, to love Christ and live for Christ together, I decided I'm going to make up some handmade crosses. And so I took this little uh, little piece of... I guess you'd say it's rope and I would string it between a cross that I put together. It was just it was just wire that was covered in a clear plastic and I would bend it into the shape of the cross and so I gave one of these to each of the guys and they would wear them to remind them uh, of who they belonged to that they belonged to Christ. Now somewhere in this and I don't think it's good theology I don't know but but what we decided and I don't know how this came about was that whenever we were going to intentionally sin against God we would take off that cross and put it in our drawer or hang it on the wall or something. So at first, we were very zealous about this, right? Like, so we were always wearing our cross. But then then time went on and we would take our crosses off on Friday nights, on Saturday nights. But then we would keep it on during the week. But then time went on and we would take it off Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays. And it was a great reminder to us Of the beauty of the cross. And the beauty of the cross is not that we bear a cross for Christ. Though we are called to do that. The beauty of the cross is that Christ bore the cross for us. So that as we sin again and again and again and again. We can remember that Christ paid the price in full upon the cross. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this horrifically ugly, majestically beautiful cross. Help us to consider it with weightiness and with appreciation, but never stop at the cross. But look, through the cross to our Savior, who died upon it for us, and then rose again to give us newness of life. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded That upon the cross, your body was given for us. Your blood was shed for us. Help us to receive your supper with admiration, with joy, with delight. As we glory and boast in the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.